On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking to a 27-year-old who has never trick-or-treated before, but is going out to give it a try. Why has she never done it before? Why is she trying it now? Well, you got to stick around and find out. And we're going to be chatting about the electoral map of Hamilton from the municipal election. If you see where the votes went for Andrea Horvath and where the votes went for Keenan Loomis, our one city is two cities. We'll discuss. Oh, and Don Robertson joins us to talk goalie masks and Halloween masks and Halloween costumes and all kinds of other things. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Chances are, even as we are talking right now, if you're at home, the doorbell has started ringing. Or if you are out, you're racing home. Drive safely, though. There's kids on the street. So you can take your kids out or so you can be home. But, you know, one of the interesting things is some people maybe because they haven't lived here all their life, are now adults who have, believe it or not, never experienced Halloween. Never dawned on me until I saw a piece at thespec.com today. And Beatrice Bolero, who's a reporter of The Spectator, uh, originally from Brazil, writes a piece that she's 27 and has never been able to do the whole trick-or-treating thing. So today, she is going to give it a shot. She joins me now. Beatrice, how are you? I'm good. I'm so excited for tonight. I can't wait. I am actually nervous. So they don't have they don't do any kind of Halloween in Brazil. Um. So, yeah, uh, Halloween in Brazil is not a big deal. Um, schools, they try to make, make it happen for the kids. But um, all we get is just some lame decoration, like <laughs> tiny plastic spiders taped to the walls and some really old skeletons from many, many, many Halloweens ago. Um, some neighbors don't even answer the door, forget to buy candy or simply don't have any. So Mm. it's definitely not a thing in Brazil. But, and what about like dressing up or that kind of thing? Um, well, we do see the little kids dressing up, um, but it's just, well, you can count in fingers of one hand, um, how many people you actually see dressed up for Halloween in Brazil. Okay. So when you move here and how, how long have you been here now? Uh, it's been four years. Okay. So when you move here, are you, when you've come from somewhere else, are you aware of our Halloween to, or North America's Halloween tradition? Or was it when it came that you suddenly went, what the heck is going on? So I think every immigrant, if you grew up outside North America, you watch um, Halloween movies and, and you see how they celebrate it and, and, and how all the houses are decorated and all the leaves and, and there's that environment and Halloween looks perfect in movies, but in Brazil, it's a tropical country, right? So it's just like Halloween doesn't really go along. Um, <laughs> with, doesn't translate. With the country. Yeah. Yes. It doesn't translate. So, um, when I moved here, it felt like I was in a movie the first time. I, I saw all the houses decorated and, and all the, the trees changing color. And my friends here, they start planning their costumes uh, months in advance. So <laughs> it, I, I just realized how much of a big deal it, it is when I moved here. I have seen costumes for best best, best uh, pet costume and um, the houses decorated up to the roof. They Always yeah. amazed me. Yeah, I guess it really much. is a first world thing, which I, I know is, is, I suppose, nice that we can do it. But it, it is. It's, it's very different from from other places in the world. OK, so today, uh, as I say, today, you're 27 now. And I only mentioned that because you've written about it and you've never done this before. So today mm-hmm. you are going to give trick or treating a go for the first time. If you've never done it before and you don't have a parent as a kid to get you ready, 
That was always what we always leaned on. Where do you even, how do you figure this out if it's brand new to you? (laughs) Well, it's hard to know where to start. So you just have to go about asking your friends, I guess, um, and and see how much planning they they put into it. Um, I, unfortunately, I went to um, a store last minute yesterday and I learned it the hard way (laughs) that that's definitely not what you're supposed to do because it was sold out. I I couldn't find anything. I found a, 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 a witch hat that doesn't match my broom so i got a red uh, hat and a, a green broom some um pumpkin socks um t- to wear with my boots i couldn't find a candy bag and then i i texted um a joanna who's helping me out with uh, with halloween she's also a reporter at the dictator and she's kindly letting me go trick-or-treating with one of her kids um and then i told her joe like i I'm here looking for a candy bag, but I cannot find a single one. I've I've been all over town, cannot find a single candy bag. And she's like, don't worry. This is not how the kids do it. It's just for the little kids. You don't have to bring like a little pumpkin. Kids actually use a pillowcase. And that blew my mind. It was like the actually the first thing I learned about Halloween here is that it's you you get candy in a in a pillowcase. That is a that is a professional bit of advice that you received what years ago when i was very young one of the things we learned was we had pillowcases but we also had three costumes and we would run our whole neighborhood doing all the doors run home dump our pillowcase switch costumes and then do the whole thing again so we could hit every house three times yeah i it must have been amazing to to grow up um like that but again i also imagine myself in a few years when when I finally have my kids and they're like, okay, let's go trick-or-treating. And I don't even know how to do it, where to start. So I, I thought today was the day and it was finally time to 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 do it. And uh, so someday I can uh, pass on that uh that all these tricks. <laughs> yeah, all the all the tricks that you will pick up today. Now here's the yes. catch though. Here's the here's the and I don't know if anyone's warned you about this yet, Beatrice. So I'm I'm gonna give you some fair warning here. There are some places that will or could give you a little bit of a stink eye as an adult if you show up trick or treating. Now you look quite youthful, so that's you know that helps. But have you have you figured out what you're going to say when someone says, "Aren't you a little old to be doing this?" Honestly, I don't have the answer to that. I'm I'm a little nervous about that part. Research. I, I hope, Research. I, I I hope everyone is welcoming. Um, I, I think I'll have to explain myself a little bit. Um, but I, I think that it's just taking part in traditions is what makes newcomers settle in, in, in a new country. So I, I just hope that everyone is understanding and I get full-sized candy no matter <laughs> That's no matter what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Just say research. I'm just doing, I'm doing research. It's okay. Now, what else? Because Halloween obviously is, I, I think, and you're sort of pointing to it, a North American thing. I don't know what they do in Europe with Halloween, but I think it's very North American. What other, since you've come here, what other traditions are way, way different than what you would do at home? Uh, Thanksgiving. We don't have Thanksgiving. So I, um, I, I, I had to experience that here for the first time with my friends. We, we made dinner, we, we bought a turkey and we had no idea how to cook it. <laughs> and um, since I've always been the cook, um, I, I had to go and venture out in the kitchen and I, I spent hours um, with that turkey. I, I didn't know how to clean it up, how to how to do anything. So I think another uh, new experience of being an immigrant and 
different traditions and celebrations definitely includes uh, Thanksgiving. Absolutely. Now, what about and how did the turkey turn out? By the way, did you make did you did you nail it? I nailed it. Yes, oh, okay. I guess I'm a natural, um, but I didn't know that it would take hours. My friends were starving by the end of the night, so I start I start working on it around five p.m. I was like, "Oh, this will be ready around eight, like <laughs> regular dinner time," and then we were having dinner at midnight. Well, so I, I guess I guess that that was a lesson, one of the lessons that I learned. But isn't that what it's all about? Like we're talking about this. I'm laughing only because I get it. And it, but lesson learned, right? Next time, okay, now I understand. That's kind of the whole point of what you're doing today lesson learned yes well if you are um i won't say where well i don't know are you in hamilton or burlington or where are you going to be doing this i am in hamilton okay so if you see beatrice she's wearing a red witch's hat she's carrying a green broom and she has pumpkin socks and a black outfit if you see someone that looks like that and you're listening she'll be leaving to go out as soon as we're done talking here uh say are you beatrice and if she is if she says yes full size candies only Please. No raisins, please. And, and no raisins. Beatrice Bolero. Hey, have fun tonight. I hope I, I can't. You, I'm sure you're going to be writing about this, right? In the spec or on the spec.com. Yes, there will be uh, more to come, uh, more lessons um, from tonight, hopefully. And uh, there will also be a balance of how much candy I got. There you go. Yeah. And people can probably hear the dogs in the background. The kids have begun to arrive at our door. So, uh, hey, Beatrice, <laughs> enjoy it. We'll, we'll look forward to hearing about it. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The election, getting ready for the votes to begin rolling in a few minutes late, but nonetheless, see the votes get rolling in. Well, seven days have passed and very interesting. Uh, We know what the outcome was. Obviously, everybody knows what the outcome was. But Chris Earle, who's a local political scientist, has taken what the city has released now from the different polling stations and different areas of city and mapped where the votes went. We're talking about for mayor. And what he has produced by placing in green blocks, green spaces where Keenan Loomis was the leading mayoralty candidate and purple ones where Andrea Horvath was the leading mayoralty candidate. There were none for Bob Bertina. He didn't win any. Is a stark, stark image of our city. I want to bring in Russ Powers. He is the outgoing, soon to be outgoing, councillor for Ward 5. Uh, he's also someone who's been involved in local politics for a long, long, long time. Russ, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. I sent, uh, Russ saw this map earlier today. I had shared this with him. And Russ, I got to tell you, when I look at this, the first thing that came to mind, and I know this is old school, and I know we're going back almost 20 years now, amalgamation did not take. This is two separate cities that we're looking at here. Distinctly, yeah. Just, just like yourself. When I looked at that and saw the uh, the ring around the city, I, I, I thought back to the you know the 2000 election involving uh, Bob Morrill and uh, and Bob Wade, and um, just uh, I, I thought exactly the same situation. For those who haven't seen it, and of course we're on radio, you can go find it online. If you go to Twitter and go to Chris Earl, E-R-L, you'll find it. What this shows is purple. Again, purple is Andrea Horvath, is literally every, pretty much every single area of the old city of Hamilton. And green, which represents Keenan Loomis, is everything else. So Dundas, Ancaster, Glenbrook, Waterdown, Flamborough, Stony Creek, Binbrook, all green. 
And again, I look at this and I think, how is it, Russ, that we are 20 years into this amalgamation experiment? And it seems, if this is any guide, that we still are living in two completely different cities. Well, I think the situation, Scott, is that those of us that have been around long enough to have gone through the amalgamation wars, we have a recollection of what happened back then. So just as you said, and as you saw, and I saw, was it just brought back those memories. I think it has more to do than the the outreach of the candidates. I think Keenan Loomis, and this is just my assumption because I don't know for sure, is obviously he assumed that Andrea had a strong base in the old city of Hamilton. And therefore, if he was going to make gains, he needed to reach out to the uh, the uh, the suburban municipalities, as we still refer to them, around the uh, around the room, and I think that played out. I think the policies that he offered up for the consideration was something that they could buy into, and uh, um, they were up for a change, and they gave their support to um, you know to Keenan Loomis. I think what's very important for um, uh, Andrea as as mayor and the new council is this is a stark picture of the reality of what happened last week. And that council needs to take this into consideration. What we don't need is the old wars of us against them, that every decision that was made always had a parochial aspect to it. So uh, the city, it took quite a number of years for us to get to the point, us being... Hamilton City Council get to the point where we thought ourselves as residents of the city of Hamilton and, you know, not of Dundas, not of Stuyvesant Creek, not of not of Hamilton. And we, we work together to achieve something. Well, OK, but uh, maybe I'm just cynical. I've yet to see that happen where the people who represent the wards in the old city are looking out for the wards in the suburbs or vice versa. Those in the suburbs are trying to find ways to really first and foremost do things for the new city. I've yet to see that really work where everybody is looking big picture. So what would all of a sudden make that happen? Well, I mean, two of them that automatically come to my mind, and I was part of it because I was part of the council at the time, was with how we dealt with the, uh, um, you know, the renewal of the water systems, the water infrastructure. And in, in, I mean, we we could have just plain said, you know, those of them in the suburbs just could have said, you know, the hell with, uh, you know, old city of Hamilton, you created your own problems by having the combined sewer outlet. And collectively, we needed to make a decision with regards to rates in order to allow that renewal to take place. The other one, and, and I worked to get with uh, uh, Chad Collins when he was the, uh, the you know, Ward 5 councillor for the city about garbage collection. I mean, the, the, the suburbs were um, very open and very progressive from the standpoint of of recycling and garbage collection and that, and there was a uh, um, an older state of mind with regards to garbage. So you're probably right. The number of those things that have happened um, are far and in between, but I've experienced them, and uh, and uh, there are probably other ones that if I thought long and hard on it, that uh, would be something. 
They, they could. I mean, they, look, you're, I'm, you're absolutely right. It's not like it's never happened. It's just not the the common behavior. So here's another one that I know became an issue in this election. And I really do wonder if when Keenan Loomis switched his position, if it really helped him, that's area rating. People in the suburbs, as you know, as you talk to them, don't want to pay more for taxes for transit that they either don't use or doesn't come and service them. This is one that is going to be an issue. And Russ, if you were sitting on council right now, again, in the next council, and you were representing one of those purple areas, one of those wards that's purple, probably you will be in favor of area rating. That seems to be the position of all of those. But when you then look at all the green people, do you look at that and say, maybe as a city building, and I'm choosing one example, you can pick any number of them, but as a city building thing, we reconsider this? Or do you just plunge ahead and do it because that's what you promised? Well, I mean, I guess the reasoning behind the whole thing was that it was only supposed to be a temporary measure and it was supposed to be phased in over time. Well, guess what? The phasing is never has taken it over time. So it's got to the point now where it's going to be an immediate hit that's going to have immediate impacts and substantial ones on the suburban municipalities who have who have benefited from that. On the flip side is, you know, Yes, we need to invest in the transit system, and we need money to do it, and, and the way to do it is, is to get money from the taxpayers and that. But why should people who will never, ever, ever receive um, transit services and that have to pay for it? So that's another one of those particular things. And, and you're totally right with regards to, to uh, Keenan Loomis is he waffled on that particular issue. And and then he didn't come out decisively immediately in order to establish his position that he was not in supportive of area rating. Sorry, he was supportive of area rating to allow what was the carry on. In other words, you pay for what you get and uh, and nothing more. And if you get more, you'll you'll pay more, but not just the blanket check uh, spread uh, equally amongst the city. This is a really tough question um, because you've not been mayor, but let me throw it at you anyway, because you have been a politician. You're now Andrea Horvath, and someone has sent her this map. So she's now looked at this city that she's inherited as mayor, and she's seen where the part of the city is that brought her to power, and she's seen the part of the city that's not been in favor of her. How do you govern a city that is as divided? How do you try to win over those who are in the green areas who said, no, we don't want you as mayor, perhaps? Well, if, if it was me and, uh, and you know, part of her platform and, uh, and, and just like yourself, I, I stayed on top of the platforms of the, uh, of the major players for, uh, for, you know, for mayor. And she indicated that she wanted to do outreach to all the uh, the various areas of the uh, of of the city. She now definitely needs to do this sooner rather than later. If not herself, she needs to get her staff involved. Whoever her her new staff joins her, uh, her chief of staff. That needs to be a priority because very clearly, a picture. Of something that something there there needs to be healing that goes on left unknown just like a like a wound if you don't care you know take care of it 
it fetters and it becomes even worse. So she needs to top, stay on top of the issues and find out where she can get some, uh, some buy-in from not only the councillors who represent those particular wards, but, but also the uh, constituents. One more thing, Russell, we got to run here. And I don't believe that it's fair to ever, if a, if, a, if a politician gets elected, they got elected because people liked who they were and what they stand for. So I don't think it's fair to ever then say, this person didn't get elected by a huge amount, therefore they have to abandon all their principles. I don't believe that's right. But looking at this again, does this tell you, if you're Andrea Horvath, I need to really stick by my guns of what I believed because of those people who voted for me. Or, you know what, there are a number of people who clearly didn't, so I have to temper maybe a little bit of my more left or more NDP natural leanings to accommodate everybody. I think it can do both, Scott. It's very clearly is in order to get that solid support that she got, that 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 inner center and that... Those are the issues that got them, whether it's the homeless issues or the housing or, or, or transit at the downtown core. They need, she needs to focus on that. But then she needs to look at the ones, particularly as it relates to taxation in the suburban areas, the, uh, the area rating as it relates, relates to, to transit. Those things need to be acted on or started to be worked on and considered in a lot of detail sooner rather than later. That is Russ Powers. He will soon be the former councillor for Ward 5, but uh, someone who always knows his way around local politics. I really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in a man who is not wearing a mask today, we think. (laughs) Don Robertson is with us. Sir, how are you? I'm good, Scott. It sounds, it sounds like the turnout of trick-or-treaters is uh, running about the same pace as the turnout for the election last Monday night. About the same, you know. That would have been, maybe next time, put it on the same day and give out candy at the polling stations, and you'd be able to drive up the numbers. Giving out free beer might work better, but you're on to something. Give, yeah, there you go. Free, free something. What was? Uh, do you do you remember now? I know that for you and I both, it's been a few years since we dressed up and went out for for Halloween trick or treating. Do you remember your best Halloween costume that you ever wore? I would think it was a. I was a cowboy, and I was probably six. And uh, my parents might have given me a real gun back then, um, <laughs> but I thought I was. I'm, it would have been a musket, though. Um, I, thought, I think that was probably pretty cool. I dressed up as a hockey player one year because parents weren't all that creative, so I just put my hockey gear on and out the door I went. But Linden was a pretty small town, right? You didn't even have to go through the full town to get a bag. And I remember as I got older, the uh, some of the people in town, my parents owned the general store, but people bring all uh, all their kids in from the – from the country, right? Because who wants to go half a mile from one house to another? So you'd come to town, and but it was uh, it was a pretty big deal. Devil's Night was always fun too when I was younger. They'd always get an outhouse and burn it on the road across from the church. That was always interesting. Fire department would go out, and then finally they ran out of the outhouses. They'd burned them all up. But Devil's Night was always interesting too. Funny thing about costumes: the costume when you are very young 
matters incredibly. You you think about your costume for a long time when you're very, very young. Then there comes a point when you're just about approaching teenagehood that you've figured out, as you sort of allude to, that you figured out, doesn't really matter what I wear. I just got to get the candy. I just got to be in something, which is my key to getting free candy. But then as you become an adult, if you get dressed back up and go to costume parties, then the costume really matters again. You put a lot of thought into it. There's that gap in between, though, where it's just about it, pure capitalistic candy gaining operation. Did you uh, ever use a pillowcase to go collect? Last hour, we talked about this. I, for a couple of years, my friend Ward and I had three costumes and pillowcases, and we would get in one of our costumes with the pillowcase, run about three or four full streets, run home, dump the pillowcase, change costume quickly, and then do the whole thing again, and then do it again a third time, hitting all the same homes when we figured out where were the good homes with the good candy. And you do it in three costumes, so they never figure it out. Hmm. So, so, yes. So as a youth, you were a crook. I like to think of myself as a clever entrepreneur. <laughs> Creative. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Don, the part about it that we realize again later on is those people were not in any way paying attention to what we were wearing. We could have literally just run around three times in a row and they would not have cared. We went to a lot of work for something that didn't take any work. Did you ever get that stuff that was always wrapped up in the black and orange papers? It was a really hard coffee kind of a... But it was like gray. Yeah, it was kind of a gray molasses-based... Yeah. I think it was molasses mixed with old motor oil that had been taken out of cars during motor oil changes. And they mixed it together and said, eat this, kids, because that's kind of what it tasted like. It was almost as like it was a deterrent to Halloween. Why don't we give the kids this and they won't come back next year? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That or there was always – now, they don't do it anymore because, thankfully, health department edicts finally rose a bit. But there was always the one person who would give you a homemade popcorn ball It's like, oh, or, an, or an apple. And, and then the, you know, the whole razor blade rumors – stop that one but yeah we, it was for us it was always if you could get a full-size chocolate bar or a complete or a full can of pop you had scored yeah that would be that would be what kind of a whack job puts pins and razor blades in uh uh apples oh boy that guy needs a swift kick in the wherever it would hurt but has that was that anyway. really true that was the thing I never know. We've heard this for years. Was it really, did we ever know that that was true or was that always just an urban legend? I really, I don't know the answer to that one because it seems, I would how hope, would you? I would hope it was more urban legend than truth. And I'm not sure that there weren't some creative kids that would stick a pin in it and say, look what I got. And of course, you'd go to probably that, that poor person was giving out apples who, who didn't know the kid had did, did that get set up as a monster in the community. I don't know if it was ever true. That'd be pretty wacky to do that, wouldn't you? Uh, you would have to be very wacky. And, and what I don't get is, well, I guess, you know, parents today um, pay much more attention than once upon a time. I was going to say, like, how would you bite into an apple? First of all, what kid is coming home from Halloween and immediately launching into the apple? I mean, that is that is a that is a kid that needs help. If you have all that candy and the first thing you go for is the apple, the only explanation might be that your dad was a dentist. But, I mean, 
So just the fact that the kid would bite into an apple that had a pin, but how would you not notice a pin? That's the other thing is there, there'd be a hole there. Yeah. Anyway. Well, as a kid though, you're not paying attention. And clearly, as you pointed out, if you're having the apple, the kid's not that smart. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as for favorite costumes, I'll tell you my, my best costume ever. I was this, I don't even know what it was one year. It was like a monster kind of thing. It was a, an amalgam, but it was really, it was like a cool costume that I got. And, un, and, and as was the case many years, nobody ever saw it because it was so stinking cold that day that I had to wear my parka on top of it. So we were, we were basically going around as people wearing coats. That was our costume. Well, tonight you had to have an umbrella and a raincoat and everything else. Well, um, so our if you grand, Mary granddaughter Poppins, went yeah. out as yeah, granddaughter went out as a uh, unicorn, and actually had an outfit with two little feet out front of it with a unicorn, and it was a whole outfit. And I'm going, who makes this stuff? I think Sue says she got it at Winners, but I mean they get a little creative nowadays. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, no, no. If you if you had gone, as I say, with an umbrella and a, and a trench coat, if you'd gone as Mary Poppins or as Gene Kelly, you were set today. Otherwise, uh, <laughs> your costume was a little a little messy. So, Don, it is Halloween, so it seems like you know people are wearing masks as well. So, uh, let's get into what we actually talk about here, since we do try to talk about sports a little bit. Um, yeah, I'm asking you cold here, so I haven't given you any time to think about this, but. Hockey has had over the years, goalies have had the perfect vehicle for their creative expression in the form of a mask. And for many, many years, there have been amazing goalie masks that I think, and maybe it was just because you remember more when you were a kid, I think far more memorable masks way back in the 70s and into the 80s than they are now. But do you have one that you think of as the greatest goalie mask of all time? Jerry Cheevers. Simple. He uh, had the white mask, which was traditionally the first mask to come out. And if you remember looking at them, they, they really had zero protection for the eyes compared to nowadays because they wanted big eye holes so they could see the puck. But for those that don't remember, every time Cheevers got a stick or a puck in the face, the trainer or Cheevers, I think it started as a trainer, would put marker on the mask indicating how many stitches he would have got had he not have been wearing the mask. And that was pretty creative. Now they're all airbrushed and, you know, uh, team logos, buildings. Surprisingly enough, no ads, but yes. that'll come. Uh, yeah, that'll come. But I, I really do remember Cheevers, and it was, you know, in an era when there was nothing on the mask. Another one that was kind of cool was uh, Kenny Dryden's, and it the looked, target. I'm sure it wasn't. It looked like, uh, it, yeah, it, did. it was a target. But, but also the the one he wore almost looked like it was wicker, but it wasn't. Well, the very but the it, very early ones, yes, the very early one that was like bones, yeah. So, what yeah. was your favorite? I mean, there's there's a number. I mean, I, I was I was I've said this before. I was a Bernie Perrant fan, uh, so I always loved just the flyer logo. But it was that was very simple. No, I mean, I still think, and this is some people will remember this off the top of their head. Others will not. Uh, a guy named Gary Simmons, who had a cobra. It was a black mask with a cobra that swirled up from his mouth up across the nose and then 
over one of the eye holes and it there was a, that was just such a cool looking thing especially when you consider that again it was back in the time when it was the early days i don't know if he painted it or someone else painted it but someone painted it by hand it wasn't airbrushed or something like it was a hand painted i mean that was the other thing don is that if you remember if you ever go to the hockey hall of fame and i know that I don't know if it's still there, but for a long time, right near the entrance, they had a bunch of the great goalie masks. Those early ones, because they were hand-painted, if you got hit in the mask, it would usually chip some of the paint off. And so, and and you didn't have time because you played or practiced the next day. So by the end of the season, I remember, I think it was Mike Palmatier or Doug Favell with the Leafs, one of those early masks, very simple, but it looked like someone had just been firing guns at it because there was so many paint chips off of it. And that's back when you could be a little goalie. I played, uh, Jimmy Ralph had me up to his club up in, uh, where the heck was it, north of Toronto. And Mike Palmatier played with us. And I, you probably met Palmatier. I've seen him. I didn't, like, I knew he wasn't a very big man. He is not a very big guy at all to play that position now. When you think of some of these guys going down on their knees and their shoulders are at the uh, height of the crossbar. Uh-huh. Like his shoulders were barely the height of the crossbar when he was standing up. Yeah, he was like five seven or five eight. Yeah, he's not a very big guy, but he's pretty creative and athletic. So, but you know the thing that so his mask for a long time very simple, just a blue like almost a cross, a dial like an X on his mask. But Don, the thing that as you look back, and I was doing this today, and I, I got thinking about this, and I started spending a few minutes looking at this. The thing with the older masks, they were simple enough that you can remember them. There was something on there that you say, oh, like you talk about Ken Dryden, the Target, or Bernie Perrant with just the flyer logos on it, or Gary Smith, who's or Gary Simmons, whose nickname was Cobra, which is the Cobra, or Gilles Gratton, who had the lion face, or whatever. They were, they, the ones today are so intricate and so, I mean, they're, they're amazingly done. But unless you're up really, 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 really close, you really don't see the detail. You don't see what it is. These old ones, you could be on the other side of the rink and you would say, oh, I, I see what that's, what's on his mask. I, I, I love that better when you know exactly what it is you're looking at. Mike Mole's mask for the Allen Cup in, I think it was 2014, had, he had a, had a mask done for that season and... Uh, had the Collins Hotel on it. It had another building in Dundas. It had another place where he played. You know, of course, on the back of it, it had Molsey. But it, you're right. I mean, it was almost like a tourist attraction to see all the places. Uh, I think one of the buildings was Belleville on it because he played junior there. I mean, they get so creative, but you're right, they're so detailed that you have to have a – of course, the pictures are so much better too, eh, the – digital pictures some of the pictures of them and you can spot it but to, to when he brought it in he handed it to me he's look at this and I, i'm going wow like who does this stuff and you got to be pretty creative he i think had the concept and then gave it to a guy and did it it was you're right and you know he's he's playing senior hockey he's not playing a national hockey league but he had a national hockey league mask i'll tell you that it was very cool well, the the other thing about them, we got to take a quick break here. The other thing about them that I think is really different is that once upon a time, you knew who a goalie was by his mask. You would see that guy, you would just see the mask and go, oh, I know who that guy is. 
Uh, Ron Lowe with his Washington Capitals mask was another great one. Or, um, oh, I, I mean, pick your, as you say, Cheevers, for sure, you would know. Now, uh, the colors might give it away. Maybe a team logo would give it away. But uh, could could you honestly, if you if I gave you a black and white but otherwise untouched picture of a goalie mask, could you draw even a basic outline of any goalie in the NHL, what's on their mask from what you can remember of their mask right now? I couldn't. No, not a chance. And you, and you being a goalie would probably pay more attention than some of the other guys, no, but although you played in an era with no masks. But um... <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Do you, do you remember? <laughs> speaking of that, we got to go. But do you remember? Do you remember who the last goalie was to play a professional hockey game without a mask? He's a Hamilton guy. Andy Brown. Andy Brown. Yep. Andy Brown. Yeah. I uh, number of years ago, one of the favorite stories I ever wrote. I caught up with Andy Brown, and we talked about it. it was it was at that time? It was thirty years after he had played his last game without a mask. And he is a character of all characters. It's no surprise that he would be the guy to not to be the last one not wearing a mask. Is he still around? I believe he is. Now, this was probably 15 years ago that I did this. Uh, I believe he, he was living in Indianapolis and raising racehorses. And the funniest part was he... The, the stories, he would whenever he would talk about getting hit in the face, he would describe it as like a boink. And I'm like, that sounds cartoon-like, like boink, and not like whammo, like you've just lost all your teeth or you've had your forehead splashed open or something, but boink. And I was like, all right, Andy, that's um, if it's a boink to you, then that explains a lot. So, uh, they probably yeah, played against Bobby Hull. Uh, and Stan Makita and all those guys with those crazy yeah. hooks that were firing pucks. They didn't have any idea where they were going. Absolutely. Don Robertson is with us this evening, as he is every Monday night. And Don, um, we were talking about goalie masks and hockey a second ago. Let, let's stay with this one for just a minute because um, ah, the Maple Leafs, if you are a Maple Leaf fan, uh, this team may not be leading you to eat Halloween candy, but it certainly will be leading you to drink. What is going on with this team? Wow. Um, it, the biggest thing I see, it's not the record. The record is similar to what they started with last year. And I'm not exactly sure who they played last year, but they're getting beat by an awful lot of non-playoff teams. And that's where you got to pick up the easy points, because when they start playing Boston, Tampa, and Florida, Colorado, it's going to be no cakewalk. So they blew a 3-1 lead against a team that lost five in a row. And it only won one game last night. So I hate to say this, but they're, as people have said in the past years, they're playing to get their coach fired. And I'm not convinced it's all the coach's fault. I mean, he's not asking them to play poorly. Uh, their scorers aren't scoring. And uh, as Harry Neal once said, they can't win at home and they can't win on the road and he can't think of anywhere else to play. And uh, I, they need a shakeup, and a lot of people have felt that way. And I'll tell you, if you're a Leaf fan, and the big goal is to win the first round of the playoffs, this keeps up. Winning the first round of the playoffs won't be the issue. It'll be getting in it. 
and then there'll be no confidence they can go anywhere. So your 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 comment about how it looks like they're playing to get their coach fired, I don't disagree with you. But to me, that is the most unbelievable indictment of this team, if that's what's going on, because they did this once to, because they didn't like the taskmaster. And now they've got a guy who apologizes every time he criticizes, even in the most slight way, because he doesn't want to offend anybody. And like, where do you go next? To, to me... I wouldn't be firing the coach. What's the coach? The coach is the winningest coach by percentage in Leaf history. Now, not in the playoffs, I grant you. But I also don't think that the coach has taken one shot, blocked one shot, made one save, passed the puck once. This has got, to me, this has nothing to do with the coach. This is entirely the character of the guys in the dressing room. And right now they are not exactly bathing themselves in glory. Well, and and, uh, who stocks the dressing room? The general manager. That too. I saw a tweet today by a legendary columnist that says it makes no sense to change the general manager now. Let him finish the year and the next guy start with a clean slate. I'm not convinced I agree with that philosophy because, uh, and one thing Dubas has not done, he's not more used to future or given up things that perhaps he was tempted to do. Uh, that's going to hurt the team five years from now in case he's not there. You know, some GMs go, I know this is a crappy trade, but it's going to make me better and it might save my job for a year. I mean, he hasn't really done that, but he has not pulled the stellar moves. Like he had a pretty good off season two years ago. This off season, uh, I'm not so sure. Everybody thought that uh, Murray was a questionable guy because of his injuries and uh, gets hurt after the first game, and the backup is maybe adequate and seems not to be, and his backup is like Scott Radley lookalike. So in goal, but Sheldon Keith didn't pick these goalies. Dubas did. So Yeah, the, yeah the, the challenge is that also you've got um... – this GM and this coach are so are so joined at the hip that it's impossible to imagine separating one from the other. And so I, I you know, I don't know. But as I say, I, I all this talk for the last couple of days about is the coach is Sheldon Keefe in difficulty? Is the coach in trouble? Is the coach going to get fired? And I'm thinking this has to me this has nothing to do with the coach. This is a bunch of guys who are making a handsome living looking entirely disinterested, looking entirely disinterested. And how how this particular group could possibly look disinterested, not even talking about their paycheck, having achieved nothing, less than nothing. I mean, winning a Stanley Cup is something, but even getting to the finals would be something. Even winning a round would be something. They have achieved, Don, the equivalent so far of being in class and it's a test and the only thing they got right was putting their name at the top of the paper. That's, that's no, there's, uh, there's a how they could be, time. how they could be disinterested is beyond me. It, I just don't get it. Well, and the, the only suitable replacement for Sheldon Keith, the way Dubas uh, operates the franchise is Terry Crisp. And Terry Crisp is getting old. He was the last successful coach in the Sioux. 
Now, they went undefeated at home under his tenure, but, you know, that was, I don't know, five decades ago? No, not well, five, so four decades. Four dec- if you're only going to hire guys that have had some affiliation with the Sioux, you kind of handcuff yourself a little bit. And I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but he does it a lot. Yeah, I'm he's just got one more coach. At- he's got one more coaching change. One more. He got rid of Babcock, and if he gets rid of Key, he's in trouble. So, so he Drew Bannister want to make that decision. Drew Bannister could be the next coach of the Leafs because he was the guy who followed Sheldon Keith. But more than that, uh, he didn't follow. There was one guy in between. But more than that, it, when the Hamilton Bulldogs won their first championship in 2017-18, they beat the Sioux Greyhounds who had had to finish first and had a great year. And Drew Bannister was the head coach, I believe, of that team. So maybe there's your guy. If you want to keep the Sioux Greyhound thing going... Uh, although I'm not sure that you do, but I, I mean, it's just look. It's it's. I don't know that why you would fire the coach though. I don't know why you would fire the coach because you've already done that. You've already given the players what they want. You've already got a guy who is so nice to them that when he criticizes them even a little by saying our elite players were not elite, which is hardly someone walking into the room and you know t- getting a bullwhip and cracking it around guys' heads. I mean, it's the most benign of criticisms you could possibly imagine. Don, I, I I know you're a great real estate agent, but that particular sale, you didn't do quite as well as maybe you have in other ones. I mean, if I said that to you and you went, oh, I can't take that kind of criticism. That's on you. That's not on me. That And that's what this was. Our elite guys did not play elite. And he had to apologize for that. That's that that to me speaks volumes not about him about the delicate sensibilities of his players like get you're being paid in some cases 10 11 12 13 million dollars call me whatever the heck you want if you're going to pay me 13 dollars come up with the worst names you can imagine I'll take it that's the trade off that's why I'm being paid there, there used to be lots of guys in the league that were considered players coaches pat burns you know guys loved them but that's not quite as popular now as guys that just demand um, effort every night. And so being their friend at that level is not a key requisite anymore. And Sheldon Keith wants to be both, and you, you've got to be a master at it. Like, there aren't a whole lot of guys that I've talked to that have ever played for Scotty Bowman they plan on having him over for Thanksgiving dinner, but they all love the fact that he won every place he went. Like, he's not their best friend, but boy, could he ever make them win, and that part they love. So, I don't know. Keith's in an interesting position. He's a younger guy, so, you know, but he's in his 40s. He can't really relate to guys 22 making $12 million a year. It comes down to their own pride and what – what they think of themselves, and you're right. That's not the coach. He can't grill that into them. He can't make them want it. And I am, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a challenge. I, I'm, I'm sitting here over the last few days after that. After Sheldon Keith apologized for the most gentle criticism that you could imagine, my my response was, you know what? The, the player should have an option now. You get paid a lot of money and you accept the criticism or we pay you much less money, but then we coddle you 
because it's it's either comfort it's comfort one way or the other. But you can't be demanding comfort all over the place, especially while you're not having any real success. But that's what seems to be the case here. We want we want not to be criticized by anybody. I, Mitch Marner yesterday or the day before made some bonkers suggestion that the world is all against the Leafs. Everybody wants to get in the Leafs' heads and screw them all up. Like somehow everybody wants the Leafs to fail. That's that's you know what, crazy. You know what that is, eh? That, that's blaming somebody else for, your, for what you're doing. Sure it is. Sure it is. But again, it goes back to the thing, Don, that I'm just saying is how can you be taking all this money, being paid so handsomely, and not be willing to take the trade-off as being, you know what, with great money and great position comes great responsibility, and sometimes responsibility is hard. Anyway, Don, uh, let me give you some names here. The Arlington Renegades, D.C. Defenders, Houston Roughnecks, the Orlando Guardians, the San Antonio Brahmas, the Seattle Sea Dragons, the St. Louis Battlehawks, and the Vegas Vipers. They were all just introduced as the new teams for the XFL version 3.0, brought to you this time by The Rock. How do you think the XFL is going to do in its third incarnation as a football league? In all probabilities, very similar to the first two. Um, (laughs) They all seem to land a TV deal because the Americans love football so much. I don't know if these guys did or not, but... One one thing that's uh, very clear is there is an abundance of um, football players available in the United States, you know, with all the college and everything else. So the caliber would probably be okay. But the NFL is such an elephant in the room, I it's going to be tough. I mean, look at Live Golf. They're trying to do a bunch of stuff, too, and it's a challenge for them. The, this I, one, they're, they're not even trying to compete with the NFL at this point, technically. I mean, they're they're starting on February the 18th of c- coming up, so right after the Super Bowl, so you can still have football. But even then, Don, I, I look, the, the elephant in the room, you're right, because once the Super Bowl is over, the next week, it's kind of like you've gotten to the end of this great movie. And it's built up and built up, and there's this big ending. Is the first thing you want to watch another trailer? Or are you like, okay, you know what? That's That was good. That was exciting. I need a little break now and move on to something else. I don't know. Maybe maybe people just can't get enough football. They want it immediately after. But I, 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 I don't see how this thing works. I just don't. Well, it, it hasn't worked in the past. And maybe a league that could work. Um, would be a uh, like an American Hockey League uh, hockey, uh, which is a feeder to the National Hockey League. Maybe then, but these guys all want to jump into these big markets and be like the NFL. And probably the most successful secondary league in my memory would be the WHA, and they stumbled around pretty badly. But at least they got some teams sucked in or folded in or expanded or bought new franchises, whatever way the NHL framed it. <clears throat> at least it was four teams come in. These other leagues, just it's in football, it just doesn't seem to work. And the it NFL is... don't need a feeder system because they have U.S. college. 
It's like the NBA. Um, boy, do they ever get away scot-free, right? They get, Everybody trains their superstars for them, and then they snap them up. I mean, it's a it's a great it's a great deal if you're the NBA. Although they have kind of a the G League now that that uh, provides them with a bit of a support network. But these guys want to go head to head with the NFL, not head to head during the regular season, but they want to be like the NFL. And you're right. I mean, it's a tough sell. And this, and the biggest thing that they can't do seemingly is put people in the seats. If they could get, even if they paper the house, which means give away free seats, if they if they could get big crowds and make it relevant, maybe. But they've never been able to do that either. The 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 worry, I, I suppose, for anyone up here, is that if it ever does get traction, you for the money they're going to make, a bunch of the guys will end up choosing to stay in the states and play XFL because it's might look like a quicker path to the NFL because it's the, basically the same game rather than coming to the CFL. Now, they've never gotten the kind of traction that would worry you. None of the leagues down there have. That would be the only thing, is that if suddenly the XFL was a viable option in the offseason for guys who are essentially in the farm teams, that might be a little bit concerning. It just hasn't worked so far. Well, if The Rock has as much success trying to start the XFL version three, as you call it, as he did playing for the Calgary uh, uh, in the CFL, yep. then it's not going to go very well. Yeah, he was not there very long. You know, the, the other thing I do, I, do, I do wonder about, and th- this may be wacky to even suggest this, but I don't know if anyone remembers the first go-round of the XFL, but it was when Vince McMahon from WWE was running it, and there was some crazy stuff they did. And I just think, you know what, that league might have been ahead of its time. You bring back a few of those things now, even though part of the reason they got rid of them was because they were so unbelievably dangerous. Uh, but you know what, in a in a time of UFC now, uh, I, I I think perhaps, you know, you bring some of those things back now and um, you might do okay. My, my favorite one was they didn't have a, you may remember this, they didn't have a coin toss to decide who got the ball. They put the ball at the 30-yard line on a – just sitting on the 30-yard line, and you sent your two fastest players, or they put it at the midfield, and you started at the 25 or 30, and one guy from each team raced for the ball, and whoever got it like a fumble got the ball. The very first one of those they ever did, the guy dislocated his shoulder and was out for the season. It was <laughs> it was way better than a coin toss, I'll tell you, but you know I'm not sure that the league loved losing one of their best players right off the bat. Anyway. Well, they they brought in some cool camera angles. You're right. Yep. I mean, these these new leagues do get pretty creative and inventive and so on. But it's I think the traditional NFL fan looks at it as a gimmick and says, "Who needs that?" But you know what? The NFL did pick up some of the stuff that the USFL did. I think it was USFL then. It wasn't. It, well, the USFL was when uh, Trump owned the New Jersey team. Doug Flutie, I think. That one you thought might have had some traction, but it didn't. Yeah, no, it's there have been lots of leagues. There have been lots of leagues that um, that have tried it, and it's just never, it's just never gone. We'll see. Uh, but those are the uh, those are the new names, anyway. So people can uh, go to their nearest sporting goods store and buy their uh, 
their official <laughs> XFL gear for the beginning of the season. Uh, Don Robertson, always appreciate you coming on and doing this, especially on a Halloween night. I know that uh, the doorbell out in the country has been ringing nonstop and you've missed all the kids, so I'll let you get to that now. <laughs> they don't even know we're here. <laughs> Shout out to Hamilton FC. Good for them. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Champions again. Well done. Don, thank you for this. Thanks, Scott. Talk to you later. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.